You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 86. Hello again, everyone. Welcome to another installment of The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm Chris Lester, the creator and head author of the Metamore City story universe. You can find more of my work at chrislaster.org and metamorecity.com. On most weeks, this is the show where I share my fresh new fiction with you. But this time, I want to tell you about an exciting new book from one of my fellow Metamore City authors. Nobilis Reed has been a friend of Metamore City almost from the very beginning, and he has written numerous stories in the universe. You can find some of those stories at metamorecity.com, and the rest are available at his own podcast, nobilis.libsyn.com. Nobilis's new book, The Monster Whisperer, is not a Metamore City title. But if you like sexy stories in science fiction settings, I think you're going to dig it. So let's listen to my interview with Nobilis Reed and hear what this story is all about. Stick around after the interview. I'll be back with my weekly writing report and some listener feedback on recent episodes. Hello, welcome to The Raven in the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamore City Story Universe, I am here in the virtual studio today with author Nobilis Reed. Nobilis is the host of Nobilis Erotica, which is the longest running erotica podcast in the history of the world. He is also a known universe, I like to say. He has also published two <laughs> novels, several novellas, numerous short stories, including quite a few set in the world of Metamore City. His new book is called The Monster Whisperer, and it will be released by Circlet Press on December 8th, 2016. Welcome to the show, Nobilis. Thank you for having me. So I want to start out um, by having you talk to us about how this story got started and came to be. Tell us a little bit about the story and uh, what the genesis of it was. Okay, well, first off, let's start with what what it is. Uh, Monster Whisperer is a novel about Dale Clearwater, who is a traveling reality show slash porn star who keeps tentacle monsters and advises people who keep tentacle monsters. She was always intended as a parody of the Dog Whisperer program from a while back. And it was started off just as a what if of What if tentacle sex were generally considered a consensual thing rather than something that happened as a result of an attack? And uh, I'm not the first person to think of this. The phrase consentacle has been out (laughs) in the erotica parlance for a while. But as, as is very common with me with erotica, my thinking starts to go to, well, what kind of person would be interested in this? And what kind of world would they live in? And so that sort of thing blows past the concept of a vignette pretty quickly. Um, <laughs> and it started off as a short story, podcasted it, and it was fairly popular. And at the time, I wanted to have a bonus for folks who were going to buy the brand new or fairly new Android and iPhone apps for my podcast. I wanted something that only the people who bought it could get access to. So I started putting episodes of that as a serial in the app. So it was had a very, kind of a very limited release to just those people at the time. And then I, you know, I, it went along and the serial came to a fairly nice conclusion. And then I went back to the manuscript and I found that it was well over 50,000 words that I'd written for this thing that started off as just kind of a whim. I said, 
this is really kind of a novel. I should do something like with that. And so <laughs> um, now the submissions process for novels at Circular Press is a kind of unusual one in that they don't have a single submissions editor. They have a number of assistant editors and you need to submit it to one of them in order to get them to sign up to be the editor for that novel. And a good friend of mine, Bliss Morgan, who I've been working with on the podcast lately, doing some narration and things like that, read it, thought it was absolutely marvelous and agreed to be the editor for it. And that's how I got published at Circuit Press. So that's how it started. And that's how we got to where we are now. Excellent. Now, you've had a long and productive partnership with Circlet Press. They've sponsored many episodes of Nibilis Erotica, and you're a regular contributor in their anthologies. How did that relationship start, and what is it about working with them that keeps you coming back? Well, I s- discovered Circlet Press quite a few years ago in a call for submissions that came up through my usual connections to look for call for submissions. And I wrote a story for it and it was accepted. And another call for submissions came up and I wrote a story for it and it got accepted. And I wrote another story for another call and it got accepted. And I said, you know what? Three for three on acceptances on it. It indicates that there's a certain um, congruence of taste going on. There. <laughs> and I, and of course, I, I got copies of those anthologies when they were published and they were great. And the stories in them were great. And so I proposed to Cecilia Tan, the editor in chief at uh, Circlet Press, that it would be great to get some Circlet stories into the podcast, and maybe I could we could set up a sponsorship deal. So for the past, uh, I don't know, two and a half, three years, something like, Circular Press has sponsored one episode a month, and they basically give me the rights to one story from one of their anthologies as part of that sponsorship deal. And then uh, I get someone to narrate it, or I narrate it myself and put it in the podcast. And I've gotten some really incredible stories as through that deal. One of the more recent ones I got was uh, A Dancer's War by N.K. Jemison. Yeah, I saw that one. That was very cool. Yeah, it was. it's a brilliant story. I am so proud to have a Hugo-winning author on my podcast. I think, actually, I may change it so that, you know, I talk about the longest running. And the longest running is nothing. Anybody can make 10 years of crap. I I have the only erotica podcast in the known universe that has a Hugo award-winning author in it. So (laughs) awesome. Very cool. So this book is about tentacle monsters. As some of our listeners may already know, this is a trope that has been around for a long time in Japan, but it really took off in anime in order to get around the Japanese censorship laws. So it's always fascinated me that something that was so specific to one culture was able to cross over to the West and appeal to a completely different audience. So in light of that, I'll ask you, why tentacle monsters? What is this (laughs) fantasy about? Okay. Um, Monster Whisperer is not my first dip into the tentacle sex arena. Some years back, a friend of mine, uh, who you may have heard of, Remittance Girl, she's a fairly well-known erotica author uh, who writes a lot of kind of edgy stuff, decided to do an anthology of tentacle sex stories. And uh, about halfway through the submissions process, for whatever reason, she decided she didn't want to edit it anymore. And I volunteered to pick up after her. So she sent me her slush pile and said, all right, fine, you do it. Or maybe it wasn't that dismissive. I don't know. The point was she, she handed the reins over to me and I picked out 
six or eight stories that I thought were good. And we published um, Tentacle Dreams, which unfortunately the publisher of went under and so is no longer available. All the rights mm. reverted on the stories and uh, that went away. And I felt that was kind of a shame that the story was went away. So I went to another publisher that I work with on a fairly regular basis, Coming Together, which is a charity erotica series, and said, hey, I'd like to do a tentacle sex anthology for Coming Together. And she said, sure. And so I put out a new call for submissions, got a bunch of new stories. I got a huge number of great stories with all different kinds of things in it. And we made Coming Together Arm in Arm in Arm. Uh, which <laughs> I love is that title. A, it's a charity anthology, that, which is still available, still in print, which benefits uh, Oceana, which is an ocean research charity. Yes. And in fact, that anthology got my first mention in io9. And so I've I've been you know kind of interested in that for ever since uh, ever since that time, but uh, I think the appeal, uh, as I wrote in the preface of Arm and Arm and Arm, uh, is that a tentacle monster represents just irresistible, undeniable, lustful intent. When you're in the arms of a tentacle monster, there's no worry about what you look like or who you are. It wants you. It wants you now. It doesn't care about anything except having you. And I think that for some people, that feeling of being just swept up in something that whose attention is absolutely and completely focused on you is, uh, is a very powerful fantasy. It's sort of a uh, ravishment kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah. Though I think that when you get into the consentical side of things, you know, it doesn't have to be ravishment. It can be just just this overpowering force. And one of the tropes of uh, monster whisperers, I kind of flip around the advice given to someone who's handling a dog, which is, you know, stay calm, stay in control, stay focused, and the dog will behave. Uh, that when you're dealing with a tentacle monster, the thing to do is to just, you know, absolutely let go of control be afraid, be excited, be, you know, as, as emotional as you care to be, because that's what the tentacle monster craves is your emotional release. And so that, you know, it's kind of as a, as a way to almost legitimize those feelings of just letting go of everything. There's an interesting metaphor there too. I'm trying to figure out how to put this into words, but in our culture there for a long time was a sense of, Women should participate in sex when men want it, but they shouldn't act like they're enjoying it too much. Like there was almost a shamefulness in a woman wanting to have sex and enjoying sex and really being an enthusiastic participant in it. And well, I, I think that that's definitely part of it for some people. I, I try not to gender my feelings about this because certainly mm -hmm. when I did arm in arm in arm, a significant number of the, of the humans who were in the, in the scenes were male. So mm. I don't want to say that that's necessarily, uh, especially nowadays, uh, really specific to women. I think anybody can feel a certain amount of liberation from feeling like you're in the arms of something more powerful than. than oh, certainly. And I wasn't intending that as a, um, I was more speaking to like the cultural expectations being different yeah. for men and women. Yeah. I, I mean, I recognize that that's true, but I try not to bring that too strongly. I mean, the main character of Monster Whisperer is a woman. Mm -hmm. um, and most of the people who she comes in contact with are women. And so to, to some extent that, you know, I'm kind of accepting that uh, that's what people expect the people who are interested in tentacle monsters to be. 
And another thing that I did with Monster Whisperer is I made every character whose gender didn't really need to be decided upon, didn't need to be one way or the other. I made them all female. Mm -hmm. So there's three significant male characters in the story. And one of them is only male because he's uh, PG Holyfield. So <laughs> uh, that would have been another woman if it not, had not been for, for a need to put PG Holyfield into the story at that point. There was an homage there, huh? Yes, yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Let's talk about consent and erotica. I know this is a big thing for you, and the characters in many of your stories do an excellent job of communicating with each other during sex and modeling consent, communicating mm-hmm. even before and after sex as well. So how do you approach the consent question when you have creatures that most people would look at and say, oh, that's just an animal? What challenges did that bring up for you and how did you address that? That is actually a significant theme of the entire book. At the beginning of the story, keeping tentacle monsters is, is a kind of a shady business. You know, there are planets where it's simply forbidden entirely, and there are also planets where it's not respectable, but people kind of do it. And a lot of a lot of the businesses associated with it have got connections to the underground and stuff like that. It's kind of a gray market deal. Because while Dale is convinced that tentacle monsters are sentient because of the way they behave, nobody can actually communicate with them with anything approaching language. They can be trained to respond to certain stimuli. Understandings of a sort can be reached, but the relationship is still a bit more like the keeping of a pet than, you know, a partnership understanding. And even for Dale, that's something that comes up. Now, she's convinced that there's nothing wrong with it, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the, that, that whole, you know, what are tentacle monsters thing is throughout the book. And to say too much more would start being spoilery. Fair enough. So this kind of connects to my next question, which is fiction writers write about lots of behaviors that are, shall we say, problematic. We regularly have characters in our stories who lie, who cheat, who steal, who even kill. But Mm -hmm. most people would not look at us as authors and say, oh, because you wrote a character performing such and such an action, it must mean you condone that action. But with sex, it's different. Every time we write something erotic, it seems like somebody's going to judge our personal character by what our fictional characters get up to. Why do you think that double standard exists? And what do you do about it, if anything? Well, to be honest, I have not encountered a great deal of this myself. I hear it from a lot of my uh, my colleagues who are women. They'll talk about um, people assuming that they've done the things that they've written about in their stories, that, that they're interested in personally doing the, the things that they describe in their stories. And yeah, you're, it's, a, it's a double standard. You, know? you don't, you don't mm-hmm. ask a mystery writer if they've killed someone. <laughs> but at the same time, see, I think that that's not the actual surface of the issue. I think that there's an undercurrent of that when somebody asks that kind of question, they're expressing a desire on their own part for that. You know, mm-hmm. and and it's not a desire that they feel comfortable expressing. So it, it gets, you know, sublimated and transferred and all those other psychological terms to into something else before it can be expressed. Um, so I think that those kinds of questions and those kinds of suspicions say much more about the person asking the question than it does anything else. <laughs> so have you ever chosen not to write something because of how you thought it might be received? I have chosen not to write things because of the way it would affect me to write it. Interesting. Um, Say more about that. Well, I've got a story about a man who's in an auto accident. And before the accident, you know, he's just kind of a normal guy. He's a, he's 
upper class. He's he owns a business. He runs a business. We see him in the course of of that first chapter running that business in a very ethical way. He's about to fire somebody who's been, you know, har sexually harassing one of, some of the employees, and he's about to fire this person in spite of the fact that he's a very successful salesman at the company. He's saying, "Nope, this is not acceptable. I don't care how much money you make for us. You're gone." Uh, and then he has this auto accident. And afterwards, he starts hearing voices in his head that want him to do some really terrible things. Mm. And I thought this would be kind of an interesting way of approaching, you know, someone whose sexual desires are forbidden and forbidden for really good reasons. And I started to write this and I you know, thought this is a really great idea, but the cost to me to write this thing is going to be too high. Mm. It's just going to be that hard to do. If I took like six months off from right doing the podcast and just focused on it, I could probably get through it and do it and possibly make something really great. But it was just too much for me personally. The consequences were personal, not cultural or social. I think that the cost to me in that sense would be greater than anything that I could suffer for having published that story. Aside from that, yeah, if the idea is good and I manage to finish the story, yeah, this I don't generally worry too much about whether or not anybody else is going to get on my case for it. Mainly because I'm, I don't think I'm really that well known enough among those sorts of people to generate much in the way of controversy. I mean, there's a story from the early days of Rocky and Bullwinkle. Uh, you remember that cartoon from oh, before yeah. both of us were born. And I remember really an hearing an interview with one of the guys behind it, I think one of the writers, and they included this artifact that, you know, a MacGuffin that Rocky and Bullwinkle and Boris and Natasha were going after called the Kerwood Derby, which would, if any hat, if you wore it, you became tremendously intelligent. And the Kerwood Derby was a play on the name of an actor of the time named Derwood Kirby. <laughs> and Derwood Kirby's attorneys came to them and said, you can't do this, we'll sue. And the producers of Rocky and Bullwinkle, which was always on this tremendous shoestring, said, sue us, sue us. We don't have any money and we love the publicity. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Now, the nature of social media being what it is. Yeah, it would not be fun to be the target of a social media campaign. Mm -hmm. Certainly. But I don't think it would necessarily be 100% a bad thing especially if it wasn't particularly well justified. Right. But at the same time, I just wrote a short essay a little while ago about writing when I'm a homeowning, able-bodied, cisgender male in a stable relationship, I've got a lot of privilege. Right. Right. And if I address issues of social justice, I am entering a minefield because I can very easily get it wrong, first of all, and hurt people. Sure. Yeah. And even if I go to the great lengths required to get it right, I'm still in a position where I can be elbowing aside somebody who those issues affect directly rather than indirectly, mm -hmm. who could tell the job, tell it better and make a profit by doing so. Right. So on the one hand, you know, going after these social justice issues is a minefield. On the other hand, writing something that ignores those issues is no better. Mm -hmm. Right. So no matter what I do, whether I write about them, write about these issues or write about some other things, I'm entering into an arena where anything I do can be criticized. Right. This is true. And in fact, anything I do can be criticized probably with good reason. 
the only safe thing is to not write, mm-hmm. which quite frankly, I don't think that the safe thing to do is necessarily the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. But the ability to go into a situation with the confidence that if I go in with best intentions, then I will be able to escape any criticism is itself an aspect of privilege. <laughs> Only privileged people can do that. It's true. It's true. Okay. So if I go in and I get criticized, well, that is the price of, of entering a space and being creative and making things. You know, that mm-hmm. is one of the things that can happen. And if I go in and I'm criticized and it's valid, I will answer it. And if I go in and I'm criticized and I don't necessarily think it is, uh, then maybe I won't adjust my behavior. But remaining silent is not, for me, an option. So right. um, I put issues into my books because I think that they belong there. I know that I'm probably not going to change the world with even all of my books taken together. It's probably not going to have that much impact all by myself. But I think that not trying is worse. That is that is really profound. And I, I've, these are issues that I've been wrestling with too. I've spent a lot of time over the last few years thinking about how I want to address issues of of justice in my writing and what my standing is to do so. And definitely a faction within the left that would prefer that people just err on the side of self-censorship. And I think that that's the death of intellectual freedom and the death of public discourse. So all that to say, I appreciate you what you're saying. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's not, it's, there's, there is no simple answer. Well, mm-hmm. the simple answer is if you want simple answers, then don't write things because there's, you know, once you step outside that circle and start creating things, the answers are no longer simple. Mm-hmm. I saw a, there was a blog post, um, I think it was last year, where somebody had mentioned that a member of the, the activist group that they were a part of had said, kind of in exasperation, everything is problematic. And I heard that and I was like, yeah, actually just, you know, put that up on a billboard because that is universally true. Everything yeah. is problematic. You, 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 you look at something from the right point of view, you will find something problematic in it. And, and the important thing to do is to recognize what those things are and talk about them rather than throw up your hands and say, well, you know, since everything is all problematic, I'll just do what I like. Right. Right. Yeah. But the solution to, um, to problematic speech is not restrictions on speech. It's more speech. Mm -hmm. Exactly. (laughs) So let's look at the the business side of things. What advice would you give to somebody who's looking to get into the erotica market? Are there, market expectations about how much sex you include in a story, where it gets included, et cetera, et cetera. If you're writing erotic romance, the publishers have what they call heat levels with various different things, but it's usually like a five point scale with five being, okay, there's going to be sex in every chapter. And one being quote unquote cozy where nobody has any physical contact until the wedding night. Uh Um, And then it fades to black and everything in between is like covered. You can find a publisher somewhere that specializes in that particular level. There's no right answer. But one of the things that happens in erotica a great deal is that people tend to have very specific tastes. They want to see this thing in it 
And if that's not there, they're kind of not interested. Yep. Now, there's a book out there called Perv, The Sexual Deviant in All of Us by Jesse Bering, B-E-R-I-N-G, like the straight. Uh, interesting because he's not. Um, the... Um, <laughs> And it goes through some of the major things that have been considered perversion over the years, like homosexuality and uh, fetishism and BDSM and things like that, and talks about the history of when they were acceptable and when they weren't and why and all that kind of stuff. But it also goes through certain things about human psychosocial development and sexual development. And uh, one of the things that seems to be as far as anyone can tell, and of course, the research on this is a little thinner on the ground than anyone would like, but nevertheless, it seems to be that men will get their kind of sexual hooks set up by about the age of 13. And after that, that's what they want and the one thing that they want for the rest of their lives. You know, what kind of partner they like, what kind of body on that partner they like, what kind of things they like to do and think about, and, and any, any fetishes and stuff like that are, generally speaking, set at that point. For like 90% of men and about 10% of women. And women seem to have a much more, much more fluid sexuality for a longer period of time. Again... This might not be actual truth. It's the best that the science can give us right now. And of course, getting money for sex research is really hard. Um, it's so hard. But, <laughs> but uh, and I think this is one of the, because there's such a wide variety of stuff that I do in my podcast. Um, this is why I think most of the, my listeners tend to be women is because that they're more open to to all these different things. Um, and I've now completely forgotten what your question was. <laughs> Market expectations and advice right. so, for people looking to break in. Right. So if you're the kind of author who likes to write about the same thing over and over again, like Chuck Tingle, for example, you can you pretty <laughs> much know what a Chuck Tingle book is going to have in it, right? It's exactly what um, it says in the tin. <laughs> exactly what it says in the tin. I think that because publishers are usually not interested in these really narrow niche markets, right? If you want to be that kind of author with a really narrow niche market, and the thing about really narrow niche markets is once someone who likes your stuff finds you, they buy everything that you have. Yes. So, okay. So, so it's great to have something like that where you feel completely comfortable writing the same sort of things with, you know, small variations over and over again. There's nothing wrong with that. Then self-publishing is really your deal mm -hmm. because that's where that stuff lives. Yeah, you know, there have been a few publishers, uh, small press type places that have tried to exploit that, but the, the margins are never good enough for them to stay open. And you could be the next Chuck Tingle if you find the right thing. The, the women who write the uh, dinosaur porn. <laughs> yes. Uh, okay. They're self-publishers as well. Okay. <laughs> and these are two that we've heard of, but there's hundreds of them on the Kindles and, uh, and Smashwords and places like that. If your tastes are a little more varied and you like the short story format, then submitting to anthologies is the best way to get something for your work. Most of the erotica published these days is in the form of, sh of short story anthologies, I think, because most of the time, that's the format that best suits erotica. Novels are a little less common. And that's not to say that there aren't some brilliant erotic novels out there, but it's a little harder to sustain something in a novel form. Insert Not, joke here about stamina. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was trying to think of one. I just, just couldn't put it together. <laughs> 
And there's a lot of places that put out calls for submission for uh, erotica. They don't generally pay terribly much, usually $25, $50 for a short story, which is works out to maybe a penny a word if you're lucky. But there are some that pay more. And, you know, at the top end, there are some pro markets in the erotica field. But the the vast majority of the publishers that are publishing longer works, novellas and novels, uh, it's erotic romance. And at that point, there's a different kind of formula you're going for there. So, yeah, that's my advice. It really depends on whether you like to branch out and try a lot of different things or if you're really heavily focused. And that that does lead to my next question, which is that I've noticed over the last 20 years, there's been a rise of authors like Jacqueline Carey and Laurel K. Hamilton who are including a lot more explicit and semi-explicit sex that's just showing up on the mainstream fantasy shelves. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. what's the difference, do you think, between fantastic erotica and just fantasy that has a lot of sex in it? Well, here's something that I I would like to point out. Jacqueline Carey is one that people bring out a lot because of the explicit sex. And when I finished the first story, Corsiel's Dark, I actually sent off to her to ask her if I could put an excerpt of Corsiel's Dark in my podcast. I remember that excerpt. And she said, fine, which one do you want to use? And I went back to the story and there's actually only three explicit sex scenes in that really long novel. (laughs) There's a number of them that are fairly low key, but there's only three that are really, really explicitly laid out. So it seemed because the characters are so sensual and because the culture is so sensual, we think of it as a really tremendously sexual book. But in point of fact, it's not. Uh, We can and we can go back to the 90s and the 80s and the 70s and the 60s and find novels that had as much sex as Cushiel's Daughter did that were also mainstream novels. So I disagree with the concept that things have gotten to that stage. It's uh, just our perception uh, of it that's it's changed. Perception, yes. And and there's a there's a commonality to think that your current age is more corrupt than previous. <laughs> and it can come up in lots of different ways. Yes. Um, I mean, I just finished reading um, Charles Strauss, Saturn's Children, I think it's called. And the main character is a sex robot. Uh, She's a sex robot in a culture where humanity has been extinct for hundreds of years. And so her primary purpose for existing is gone. Um, (laughs) And because of how she's programmed and how she's built, she sees everything in a sexual context. And so the book is really sexy, but it's doesn't have any explicit sex in it to speak of um, <laughs> because there's nobody for her to have sex with, which is kind of not true. And I don't want to spoil. Um, <laughs> I think that there is a distinction between fantastic erotica and fantasy that has sex in it, because if it is science fiction erotica, it is science fiction that is about sex, especially in science fiction and fantasy. Erotica is more than just how much sex is in it. It's also how you address it. It's how important it is to the story and the lives of the characters. Difference Engine by William Gibson has this scene smack in the middle of the book where the main character leaves London, visits a prostitute. There's an explicit sex scene. He spends a few pages staring out the prostitute's window back at the city, musing on the state of the city. And then he goes back and continues his adventures. The sex scene is absolutely and completely disjointed from the rest of the novel. I feel very certain that the editor went to him and says, there's no sex in this book. 
And he said, well, it doesn't need any. And, and they said, put some sex in the book. So he said, sure. He just kind of opened his manuscript at random, shoved in a sex scene and sent it back because it's, it really feels like that. Oy. It may be erotic because the scene was well-written. I mean, it's William Gibson, but it still had really no place in the novel. It didn't address anything. It was not addressed by anything. It was just there. And so that's a flaw in itself. I mean, you don't want to write any scene that doesn't have a place. Right. But what it really depends on is how close to the heart of the story of the sex is. That really is really the difference for me. And it's not a, a well-delineated border. I think there's a lot of stuff out there that really, whether or not it's erotica, depends on how the publisher is marketing it. Yeah, that's true. I mean, a lot of the stuff that you've written for Metamore City is not any more erotic than the stuff that I've published in it. Uh, well, I, the, so, to some extent, I'm I'm trying to match your tone, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, Dreams of Change didn't have a huge amount of sex in it. What do you think is your biggest strength as a writer? <sighs> I have an alpha reader. Her name's Anne Regentine. She used to be an erotica author. She stopped stopped writing it a while back. She's currently working on a serial about a kind of an underground society of all the legendary immortals from all the different legends around the world. So. You know, Conte Saint Germain and Nicholas Flamel and, you know, the whole alchemist immortals thing. But there's also uh, the Flying Dutchman and all these other people who are thought of as being immortal for one reason or another. So anyway, she's my alpha reader and I send her everything pretty much as soon as I've written it to get an immediate reaction on. And she says, I love getting this stuff from you because every time I think you've completely exhausted something and written every weird thing there can be about it, you come up with something new. It's like uh, Monster Whisperer, for example, has seven different kinds of tentacle monsters in it. And they're all completely, completely different from each other. And in the sequel that I'm writing now, I've created four more that are also completely different from the ones that came before. So I think my strength has got to be just thinking up the weirdest shit you've ever come up come across. <laughs> I, I don't think that I write, you know, dialogue or action or description or anything like that better than anyone else. I, you know, certainly I, I have to work really hard to get those things right. But yeah, I just, I think imagination is my big strength. And what's a challenge that you're working on in your writing right now? Something that you're that you're wrestling with, and what are you doing to overcome it? Well, we we already talked about the social justice stuff, um, mm -hmm. and I continue to to work on a better representation of of marginal people and things like that. But I, I don't think that's a challenge that you ever say, "Well, okay, I've mastered that." Right. Right. That's not so much about craft as it is about just living in the world. Right. So I think as far as craft is concerned. I've always had a trouble with getting the right ending. They say that there's three kinds of writers, the ones who have trouble with beginning, the ones who have trouble in the middle, and the ones who have trouble at the end. And I'm one of the ones who has troubles with endings. Anne is one of that small minority of people who has trouble with beginnings. She usually writes four, five, six different beginnings for something after she finished to go back and try to find a good one. Um, I'm the same way with endings. I'm actually currently writing the ending of the serial that I've been running, just like Monster Whisperer did back then, is now for people on my Patreon. Uh, it's the kind of private serial just for the Patreon supporters. Patreon.com slash Nobilis, uh, <laughs> which is a fantasy adventure romance involving really gigantic breasts and uh, and magic that allows you to make portals between different places. And it's called Bra of Holding. 
Uh, the first <laughs> chapter of which is in my podcast and all the other chapters of which are running monthly in my Patreon. Uh, and I'm currently writing the very last chapter. I'm a little bit ahead. Uh, that's chapter 20. And the podcast is, I think, on nine or 10, which reminds me I need to get the next one out for December. Anyways, I have started this chapter like six times and then just erased everything I wrote and started again. Because the challenge of pulling together all the different threads that you have laid out in this course of a novel and doing it in a way that's elegant, does not seem contrived, does not seem rushed or forced or boring, getting all that stuff to come together is as difficult as cooking a meal where all the different kinds of food are done at the same time. Right. And if you've been doing it as a cereal, just like when you're cooking in the kitchen, you can't go back and change when things started. So you have to figure out how to make things work in the moment. And while I do have the advantage of being well ahead of where the cereal is, I'm still locked as far as the chapters that I have released. And yeah, endings are the bane of my existence. And it's funny because I have a term for this and I'll get to it in a moment, but I can write like 800 to 1200 words a day up until I get to the ending. And then it goes to 400 and then 200 and then 100. And it's almost as if part of me doesn't want it to be over. Right. And the same thing happens to me when I'm reading and I call it a biblioterminophobia, the fear of the irrational <laughs> fear of the endings of books. Um, <laughs> when I'm reading a book and if it's an actual paper book, it's terrible this way. As the remaining bit to be read gets thinner and thinner and thinner, I get slower and slower at reading it to the point where when it's close to the end, I might have it on my bedside table, pick it up, read a page and just say, oh, no, okay, I'll put it down. And then a paragraph, and then just read the same paragraph a few times before moving on. And it's terrible. It wastes so much time, which is why <laughs> ebooks have been really great, is because I now don't see the end coming so right. well. I turn off all the parts of the screen that tell me how far <laughs> I'm through the book. And the book ends, and I'm like, oh, wow, that was the ending. Okay. And I feel that same sense of loss. I mean, you know, you've seen that cartoon of someone just sitting on a curb, just her head in her hands. And say, what happened is like, I finished the book. (laughs) (laughs) There's no more pages left. (laughs) There's nothing left. There is that drop, especially Mm -hmm. if there's no sequel to pick up immediately. But at least I don't have the, you know, the anticipation of it coming up. And audiobooks are even better because then there's not even any real slowing down. It just, it just goes along and then happens. So generally speaking, I've not been hit really hard by my biblioterminophobia lately. But nevertheless, I still have it. It's just that I've I've learned to live with it. <laughs> now I got to figure out a way to do that with books. I know. I will have the uh, sequel outlined and say, okay, I'm just going to keep on writing. But that could very well just be something that I write up to the end, over th- into the next book, and then stop. Mm-hmm. So I don't need to worry. And it kind of trick my mind into getting me to the end quicker. I've heard a lot of authors say that actually that you know as soon as they finish one project they immediately open a new document and start on the next thing before they ever walk away from the computer. Yeah, I can see the value in that. But I think in my particular case what I might do is have the next chapter after the end quote unquote planned out. Mm-hmm. So that I can run over the end into that and then stop. Yeah. For that particular set of characters and settings and stuff. That's cool. We'll see how so, that works. What else are you up to? Your um, Monster Whisperers coming out on December 8th. What yep, else can the, we look forward to from in the coming year? Well, uh, Monster Whisperer, the ebook releases on December 8th. There's going to be a print version, which I'll be bringing to Balticon. There's going to be an audiobook version uh, narrated by the same person who's narrating Brav Holding. This is Bliss Morgan. She is fabulous. 
And we're going to make a, an audible version of that, which will include the prequel short story, Birth of a Monster Whisperer, that I wrote after Monster Whisperer. And so it'll be a, a deluxe edition that includes some extra content compared to previous releases. And then I'm finishing Bra of Holding. That's going to be running in the podcast. And after I finish writing that, which should be very soon, I hope, please finish soon. This is present me talking to future me. And I'm writing Monster Whisperer too. I've got an outline for it. I've written seven or eight, nine chapters of that. I took a break to finish off Bra of Holding when that turned out was going to be longer than just a few chapters. Of course, I've got episodes of uh, the podcast coming out, something coming out every week right now. In between the short story, I have a serial running in the podcast called Capricious, which is an erotic romance set in the town of Fox Pass, Texas, um, which uh, is, a, is a, uh, a romance between a satyr and a thunderbird. Huh. But of course, in the grand tradition of that sort of underground supernatural story, that they both have human forms that they walk around in most of the time. And right. Fox Pass has about half human and half supernaturals. And there's trolls and chupacabras and there's a nymph and elves and all kinds of different kinds of people. And, and I've been running that. And since it's from the satyr's point of view, I've been doing the narration on that myself. Since patio books is kind of not a thing, I mean, it's still there, but it hasn't got quite the attention that it used to get in the podcasting world. I'm not sure if we're going to collect it somewhere and put the whole thing somewhere. We might we might have a, a, a website where we can take all the capricious episodes in one place for people to just download and listen to. So that's what I'm working on right now, audio-wise and writing-wise. But my to-be-written folder has got just like three dozen half-started novellas and novels. I have no idea which one of them would be when. But Monster Whisperer 2 is high on the list. The world still has a lot more stories left to tell after this. If it does well, it might become the thing that I write, kind of like you did with Metamore City. Um <laughs> This isn't the first multi-book world that I've done, but I think that I've got a better handle on world building and a better handle on setting things up for sequels than I did in the past. So I'm really hoping that this is successful enough to warrant the effort of going on to the next one. Well, I wish you the best of luck. Thanks so much for coming on The Raven and the Writing Desk, now, Millis. You are quite welcome. And that was our interview. I hope you enjoyed it. Octavia Butler said, You don't start out writing good stuff. You start out writing crap and thinking it's good stuff, and then gradually you get better at it. That's why I say one of the most valuable traits is persistence. So, let's see how well I'm persisting this week. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 5,608 words this week over the course of 8 hours, for an average writing speed of 701 words per hour. As of Friday night, when I'm writing this script, I have gone 67 days without breaking my chain. I'm now in the middle of chapter 47 on The Lost and the Least. The story is nearly 152,000 words. I'm not sure what the final word count is going to be, but I'm thinking maybe around 175,000. We'll see if I manage to trim that down at all during the editing phase. This week, I also got to interview Jared Axelrod, the amazing creator behind the voice of Free Planet X. 
we discuss the upcoming third season of the podcast, as well as a variety of different questions about his creative process. The show will air next month on this podcast, but in the meantime, you can watch it on my YouTube channel. The link will be in the show notes. And now, the feedback. Gordon Van Tassel writes, Chris, I just finished The Raven and the Writing Desk, number 84, Divide by Zero, part 4. I was also one of the original crew to look at the PDF version of Divide by Zero to critique the text layout, which I thought worked well in print. The way you interpret it in audio is sheer art. I have been eagerly anticipating this episode just for that reason. I wanted to hear how the different paths would translate into audio, and I absolutely love it. I'm so glad that you decided to podcast the story. Thank you. Thanks, Gordon. I'm glad I decided to podcast it, too. It took a long time to weave together all those non-linear parts of the story. I think I probably spent two or three hours on less than ten minutes of audio, but I'm really happy with how it turned out. I don't know if I could have done this in 2008, but with a few extra years of podcasting under my belt, success. Thanks for the feedback. Christopher, our newest patron on the Patreon feed, writes in to say this. Chris L., I've been following you on iTunes podcasts for years now. It's definitely time to give back. Sometimes you mention additional content for members. I was wondering, how is that available for download, and if it's also in podcast-slash-audiobook form? I drive all over Massachusetts for work, and once a month from Boston to Montreal. You keep me entertained on those long drives, so thank you. That being said, I do need you to read those stories to me, so please take my money. I'm going to head to your Patreon page now. Chris B. Thank you very much, Chris, both for your kind words and for your patronage. The bonus audio content that I release to my patrons is available in a private RSS feed, which is unique to your donor ID. You can find it on the creator page at patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. On the overview page, look for the little box in the sidebar that says audio RSS link. Copy that link into the podcatcher of your choice, and you can get new bonus content delivered to you just like any other podcast. In iTunes, you'll need to go to the file menu and then select subscribe to podcast. A box will appear where you can paste in the URL. Thanks so much for writing in, and stay safe out there on those New England roads. Andrew MacArthur wrote in with this question, quote, I got to thinking about the technology involved in the construction of Metamore City while listening with my wife to one of your episodes. Does magic take any part in the actual infrastructure of the city, or is it all just technology holding it up and together? Could they build another multi-layer city elsewhere in the world if they really wanted to? Unquote. Hi, Andrew. Metamore City uses a mixture of advanced technology and careful enchantments to make its architecture possible. In general, the actual finished buildings can stand up just fine without an ongoing supply of magic, but the use of magic makes their construction a lot more cost-effective. For example, you have support columns in the big towers that might be a single thousand-meter-long piece of hardened steel. Making something like that in a foundry would be impossible, so you build it in pieces and then use magic to fuse it together into a single, integrated unit. Having access to flying vehicles that can move heavy loads means you can also build higher for less money. Magic does play into making a city full of super-huge towers practical, however. 
The skyways are held up by a combination of advanced materials and featherweight enchantments, so they need less structural support to stay up. And of course, all of this would be pointless without skimmers and swoops, which can travel on roads half a mile up without the fear of plummeting to a horrible death. So even though the buildings don't need a constant supply of magic to remain standing, it would be hard for Metamore City to function if magic weren't so abundant. As to your second question, yes, you could build a multi-level city in other parts of the world, but you wouldn't. Metamore Valley has four factors that make the layer cake design practical here when it wouldn't be anywhere else. Number one, geography. Metamore Valley is super constricted, less than 30 kilometers from end to end, and ranging from 16 kilometers across at its widest point to just one kilometer at its narrowest. It also has steep mountain ranges on both sides, which are prone to rock falls and avalanches, so the city couldn't expand simply by building uphill. Number two, mana. Magic is unusually strong in the valley because of the presence of Kaya's nexus. That makes magic cheaper and easier to access here than in most other parts of the world. Number three, it's the seat of the imperial government. In any nation with a strong central ruler, the population always concentrates around the capital. Look at Washington, Rome, Mexico City, etc. And they can't move the capital to someplace more convenient because Majestrixkaya is physically anchored to the nexus. She can't leave. Number four. Lastly, wealth. There's a lot of money in Metamore, and much of it belongs to noble houses with entailed holdings— That means a section of property that is theirs by right by inheritance that can't be traded, bought, sold, or in any other way taken from the house that it was entailed to. The towers aren't just places to live and do business. They're status symbols. And the houses have been competing with each other for generations to build the biggest, fanciest, most impressive buildings on their limited patches of real estate. They're also an important source of revenue for the houses— The more people you can pack into your entailed property, the more rent you can charge. The towers are big, ludicrously expensive projects, but with this unique set of social and economic incentives, they make sense in Metamore City. In other parts of the world, not so much. Thanks for the great questions. Oh, Chris Lester, you cliffhangering bastard. Thank you, Nobilis, for giving me the opportunity to employ my evil laugh. I've got to admit, I've been especially lucky with where my brakes have been falling in relation to my cliffhangers. I swear I haven't been planning these things out, but the gods of storytelling have been smiling on me. And hey, it makes sure you guys come back after the break, doesn't it? Thanks for the call. Chris, finally calling in with a little bit of feedback for the end of Things Unseen and some for Divide by Zero. First off, I did really like how you ended Things Unseen, and I had a little bit of trouble figuring out how to put that into words, and part of that is probably because I heard what Nobilis had said, and I really am inclined to agree that just the way that you wrapped everything up and the way that you ended this, it just, it really did feel like an ending for this part of the larger story arc. It felt like, you know, a nice solid wrap-up with with enough things left over for the Lost and Least and anything else coming up. I really, really liked how you dealt with Kate's 
return to Metamore and just kind of her trying to come to terms with things and really having challenges and her going to John, who we haven't seen for, I feel like, quite a while. It was just a really beautiful ending to the story. So that was definitely a really fun ride, and I'm glad that you were able to podcast that full-long novel. Congrats on that. Thanks, Sarah. I'm so glad that people are enjoying the ending of Things Unseen. It's probably going to be at least a few months before The Lost in the Least is ready to start podcasting, so I'm happy that people are finding this to be a satisfying pause point for the series. You've really been doing a good job getting all of this stuff with just your voice, and I think that it's really, you know, as fun as the full cast productions are, I really like the ability to put out lots of fiction that you're doing with doing just you reading. So am I. One of my intentions for this year is to take a break from writing big novels and go back to writing short stories and novellas for a while, which I can turn around and podcast at a faster rate. I'm hoping that by the end of this year, I'll have enough new stories complete to make two new collections, one for my Metamore City stories and one for my non-Metamore works. Writing The Lost and the Least has been a wonderful, brain-stretching challenge, and I'm glad I made the decision to focus on it for 2016. But there's something to be said for the kind of -of seat-of-the-pants writing I was doing in 2015, too. In terms of Divide by Zero, I really am enjoying it. I was wondering what the heck it was going to be about because I know, you know, algebra. And so it's like, okay, you can't divide by zero. It's not defined. This Septimus guy is just, he's, I can see how he's at once aggravating and intriguing. It's definitely interesting how he kind of comes in on this and just kind of is giving riddles upon riddles. Definitely curious to see whether or not there ends up being some sort of romantic or sexual something because of, you know, her reactions to him, at least that jolt in the um, virtual reality and then, you know, in person. Because part of me doesn't want that. I don't know why. I can't put my finger on exactly why, but part of me is like, no, I don't want there to be sex in this. I want it to be all science, only science, no sex in science. But, you know, sex is science-related. Uh, okay, that sounds really weird, but it's, you know what I mean. As a biologist, you know what I mean when I say sex is science or sex. <laughs> it's funny, because I've been watching a lot of David Attenborough nature documentaries during the break, and it seems like just about everything comes down to sex or feeding or both. Of course, as my partner Mel pointed out, that's pretty much what life is from a biology standpoint. You know by now, of course, that there was a definite attraction between Hallie and Septimus, but I suspect the end of the story may have surprised a few people with how it all turned out. But, you know, we'll see what happens, obviously. I'll probably end up enjoying wherever it goes, but right now I'm just like, no, don't get turned on, you're doing work, damn it! Work, important work, ah! But that was only a very fleeting moment because that was a very short part of the story so far. But anyway, I'm enjoying the narrative voice. I'm glad that you're finally bringing this to audio because when I saw the list of the stories showing up in Divine Intervention, which I haven't bought yet, I was like, oh, that, that's one I haven't read. I, I wonder how I missed that. But I figured it was just his first time appearing. So anyway, that's all the rambling I've got for now. But I just really did want to take the time to call you and say... Thanks for, you know, continuing the podcast, continuing 
reading to us and writing. And I'm looking forward to uh, seeing, uh, listening to more in the new year. You have a uh, good little vacation. You've definitely haven't earned it. Not that you need to earn it, but you know what I mean. <laughs> All right, take care. Keep it on the bright side. Sarah sent in a couple of additional voicemails after she finished listening to Part 5, and we'll play those next week. As for the rest of you guys, let me know what you thought about the story. I'm really interested to hear what people thought of it. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your comments in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is at facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is Fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Twitter handle is Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review on iTunes. It really makes a difference in helping new people find the podcast. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction, fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2017 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.